I got, I got shorts, every fucking color. I got designer t-shirts. I got gold bullets, motherfucking vampires. I got Scarface on repeat. Scarface on repeat, constant, y'all. I don't know what's going on here. I was just at work for real. Like I'm, I'm just trying to do my job, and I don't know. You could get a rich man if you tried. I don't want a rich man. You can't close the leads you're given. You can't close shit. You are shit. Hit the bricks, pal, and beat it, because you are going out. Did you see the memo about this? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I have the memo right here. I just uh, forgot. But uh, it's not shipping out till tomorrow, so there's no problem. Hi, welcome to Projections Podcast Series 4. This season, we're looking at work and money on screen, critiquing modern economics through a psychoanalytic lens. We'll discuss excess, pursuit, competition, livelihood, austerity, property, and post-digital work, culminating in liberation, to touch on the various trials, tribulations, and traumas of accessing the means of survival. First, we pitch them Disney, AT&T, IBM, blue chip stocks exclusively. Companies these people know. Once we sucker them in, we unload the dog shit, the pink sheets, the penny stocks, where we make the money. It's your choice to be a skivvy, isn't it? A skivvy doesn't come to you, you go to it. Come on, let's go to Paris's. I want to rob. All right, we're back. Hey, Sarah. Hey, Mary. How are you this week? How did your Lars von Trier course go? Oh, yeah. Thanks for asking. Yeah, I've been well. Um, the von Trier course, it was really exciting. I loved covering nine of his films um, over three days. But I have to say, at the end of it, I feel very drained. <laughs> um, like, I love him to bits, but man, is he intense. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I can imagine. You need to have a spa weekend or something. Yeah, yeah. Which maybe you can have now. I don't know. Are the spas opening? Would that, that wouldn't be very socially distanced. No, I did check into that, actually. It's mm-hmm. funny you should mention it. Um, unfortunately, they haven't opened yet. So in the meantime, to kind of like neutralize my uh, Lars von Trier marathon, I'm just watching like Love Island Australia. <laughs> <laughs> Every time I speak to you, you're watching a new reality TV show. Yes. Oh, my God. I love Trash TV so much from, like, the sublime to the ridiculous. You should write a book on Trash TV. I think you would be the the <laughs> ultimate person. I have to say, like, I was, I felt very validated when I found out recently that Werner Herzog said that he's a fan of Trash TV. Oh, yeah. I saw that, too. Yeah, yeah, and and he had this great line. He said something like, "The poet never averts his eyes." Yeah, I think that was a really great line. That was, I totally agree. I totally so agree. I, I felt very validated by that, even though like I am definitely not watching it for poetic objectives. <laughs> like it's pure like, you know, brain shutdown kind of thing. But anyway, so what about you? How have you been? Um, I've been good. I uh, experienced a spurt of uh, like sort of self-critical self-doubt and melancholia this weekend. So I just dug in the mud in the rain in the garden. 
um, which made me feel kind of like a Lars von Trier character. Uh, but I got rid of all the bracken that had taken over the flower beds, which is really, really hard thing to get out of the soil because it's got really deep roots. So I feel much better now. But I definitely, it was the only thing I could think of to do to, to get out of my slump. Oh, I like that. Yeah. It's very productive. Yeah, really. Lockdown has given me some very kind of inventive ways of coping with things you know very and much more like much more productive creative going for walks that kind of thing and yeah this and this week I well I forked but I don't know if that's really it's not digging sounds better and more cinematic but I I was forking I was forking the ground in there I was forking in the rain oh I love that actually and I like that it kind of um, maybe it's because I was just looking at Antichrist that it does make me think of that film because of the roots and yes. there's so, like aesthetically there's so many roots in Antichrist yeah they're like a tortured woman getting muddy that's, <laughs> yeah. that's me and I've always really really you know I've always really related to Charlotte Gainsbourg's character in Antichrist yeah. and that that's my date movie that's, that's your date movie yeah, yeah. love it <laughs> I love it yeah, every time I see that film, like I'm still, I'm still startled by the talking fox. Like it always catches me by by surprise. Mm-hmm. Yeah, same, same. It's, it just gets better every time. It does. Um, and then in, I suppose in ode to our series, I'm having a very financial week. I have to fill in two tax returns this week uh, because me and Jordan have only just managed to register our business, and uh, I also just sent two invoices. Uh, to kind of balance the scale do you get embarrassed sending invoices for work that you've done because I do um I get embarrassed only if I have to follow up oh okay like if I I have to chase a payment then I'm like I feel embarrassed to have to do it but I know it's still necessary Mm -hmm. no I just I'm sort of almost uh, avoidant of it in a sort of strange polite way like it, it would be too presumptuous of me to charge you for work that we'd agreed that you would pay me for um I don't know if anyone out any of our listeners have that problem please um comment because I I really need to try and shake it off <laughs> so I just sent two very late invoices oh girl you get paid thank you, you. Paid. I will <laughs> in 30 days <laughs> yes. oh my gosh yeah, I've been looking forward to recording this episode with you, actually. So mm-hmm. this is, in fact, episode number four in our Work and Money series. Mm-hmm. We're going to be talking about livelihood. Yeah, that's um, right. In two of, what for me, are kind of the two of the highlight films of this series, um, Misery and Office Space. Oh, yeah, me too. Like, I feel like they're very cathartic in very different ways. <laughs> but also very anxiety provoking, again, in very different ways. And I'm happy that we both agreed that we would start with misery and finish with office space. Yes, it will be the reasons that we've both decided to do that will become apparent as we talk yes. about that. Um, so Mary, um, I have a question for you. Yeah. Um, what would you do with a million dollars? Oh my gosh, with a million dollars, I would 100% get myself a beautiful vanity like piece of furniture (laughs) (laughs) like a vintage like beautiful 1960s like with just the most amazing compartments and absolutely fill it with 
the the very best of high end makeup. Like I would I would probably spend like a hundred grand just on makeup and perfume alone. Wow, wow, yeah. that would be my big purchase. Yeah, like <laughs> all the things that I've like had on you know shopping carts online for ages, but they're like I found that always they may be a little bit too overpriced because I buy makeup very regularly. But some luxury items I just can't really justify. Like it really is too much. <laughs> so that's where I, that money would go. That's amazing. That's an amazing answer. So um, frivolous. <laughs> so frivolous. I love that. I I mean I really think that frivolity is often a very political act, and I I feel that 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 really fits in with that. That's wonderful. Amazing. Yeah. What about you? Oh, mine's so boring in 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 comparison to that but I would I would I was thinking about it obviously having watched Office Space and that being the question that they you know they keep asking themselves and um I there is the answer I've come up with is that I would do I would change nothing I would do everything that I'm doing now and I would keep trying to do the things that I'm trying to do but I would just take the worry out of it wow wow so I would just take the I would just take the the pressure and the anxiety out of it. So I would buy myself like a reasonably priced flat that wouldn't cost a million dollars, but would cost some of it. And then I would make sure that I had enough money to live in it. And, but I would, you know, I would keep doing everything I'm doing. I would just keep trying, I would just be able to see what it was like to do what I do anxiety free. Ooh, I like that answer. Because if, yeah, I suppose, because if like, if you had all the, dis- the disposable income you needed and there was no worry or having to plan or budget or whatever, I suppose, yeah, I mean, speaking for myself as well, like that is a huge component of things that occupy my mind. <laughs> so if that was gone, what would that free up like that in terms of like thought process like that's really interesting however as we're gonna find while we're talking about these films I am slightly worried I mean obviously I have no chance of getting a million dollars or pounds but Mm -hmm. um you know I suppose the question is if we're not worrying about money what are we going to worry about and um that's that there's like a whole that's just a whole can of worms that maybe it's better that we don't open um, so actually, I think your answer is better because you wouldn't eliminate any worry. You'd just have more makeup. Like, you'd have the same amount of anxiety, but significantly more makeup. <laughs> more makeup than even like a village could not go yeah. through in their entire lives. Like, <laughs> If anything, you would further burden yourself with makeup. <laughs> <laughs> If you want to put this thought experiment into real action, I'm sure that there's a pay pig out there, you know, who would who would want to help us by financing our podcast to the tune yeah. of a million pounds. But um, <laughs> please email us if you've made that decision, because our um, donations won't take that amount of money and we'll have to <laughs> we'll have to give us a significant amount of it to PayPal. So please, yes. please don't just drop us two million. Don't do it on PayPal, exactly. Like, we can find another route. (laughs) We can find a better solution. I love that. Oh, my Um, gosh. So, livelihood was very much your your word, your topic. Mm -hmm. So, I'm interested to know what, um, whether you have any kind of theory 
like underpinning this discussion that I should know about so that I can get in the zone before we start talking about the films? To be honest, the, the main inspiration for me theoretically was that um, like Freud was often asked um, what was it that he envisaged for his patients? Like, was he, was he hoping that they would just live a completely like mental, mental illness free life? And he was always very candid. And he said, no, like realistically, we're always going to have uh, psychopathology in our life in, on a, on a spectrum of like severity and probably different types of emotions that are debilitating and maladaptive. So he said, the best that we can hope for is to transform the psychosis into a neurosis and just try and manage that somehow. And the goal is to be able to work and love, you Mm. know, be able to be productive in your work, whatever it is that you do, and to be able to have a relationship with someone, like whether that's a friendship or romance or whatever it is, interpersonal relationship. And if you can do those two things, then you probably have like a fulfilled life. So that, then I thought to myself, like someone like Freud, I can understand why he would say that because he got so much fulfillment from his work. Like he was always working and he mm-hmm. had a real passion for what he did. And he had so much enthusiasm and he was con- he was so prolific. He wrote so much and he was such a great inventor of, of theory. Um, but, and then I thought, you know, like if you go to a party and you meet new people and they ask you, what do you do for a living? Like what they're saying is like, how do you access the means of survival? Like Mm -hmm. how do you get paid to be able to afford living your livelihood, you know? And that's a very different question to what Freud was talking about in terms of like the thing that really animates you like the thing that turns you on professionally and that you want to chase after it and you feel so motivated and you're constantly like, it's putting you into action. It gives you a reason to live. That's the erotic, you know, the erotic in relation to profession, like what makes us feel creative and productive is very different to the way that people are using that term now, what we do for a living. And that becomes like, you know, what they're really referring to, livelihood has become almost like a euphemism for wage slavery. <laughs> well, that's interesting. I want to kind of come back to this a bit later in the episode, but I mm. would argue that what people are asking in the last maybe 10, 20 years is not even how do you access the means of survival, but what's your kind of symbolic, what's your symbolic value? Wow. Yeah. You know, if you're being asked at a party, people aren't the things that you're going to say that I've been reading this really interesting article, which I'm going to send you, um, which is in one granary, which is actually, interestingly, the Central St. Martin's um, publication. Okay. Um, Interesting because it's very critical of the fashion industry in general. But it's by this woman, uh, Julia Mencitieri, Mencitieri. Mm -hmm. Um, who is basic has basically written a book about the precarity, which I've learned is not a word, but I've decided it should be, yeah. um, of fashion workers. 
and she talks about this a lot she says there's this thing she says I was myself confronted with the split between social status and economic status being a PhD student at a very prestigious school in Paris I was surrounded by artists researchers journalists and I observed that when I mentioned my work as a researcher people projected desire onto me I became part of a symbolic elite yet we were all struggling to pay for rent food medical care oh wow yeah I'm going to send it to you because you'll love it I think it's really interesting Yeah, that sounds very interesting. Yeah, precarity work. I mean, that has become such a normalized way of working for so many people, especially in like urban areas, which is paradoxical because it's so expensive to live in big cities. And yet there's so many precarity workers. But there's like, there's, um, I mean, maybe this is a good thing to talk about in some of our future episodes I can think of, but we should definitely come back to this because... It's not only I've you know I've always thought of precariousness as something that is inflicted upon um, like you know actual wage slaves like minimum wage minimum wage uh, workers like sort of zero hour contracts and Amazon workers delivery drivers that kind of thing but this is such an interesting thing because this is precarity or precariousness um, being not inflicted but kind of sold to middle class people as a desirable way of working I'm with you I'm with you wow oh my god it's very interesting but anyway we're getting off topic but I just want to tell you about that I'm going to send you that article but I think it is interesting to bring it up also in this conversation because you know the the definition of how people attach value to their livelihood has changed so much mm-hmm. and you're and I do agree that the term livelihood is you know is also has also connotations of status as well so if like if you know certain if you have a certain like if you say you're an assistant versus you say you're a manager like that has different um status associations to it and it's I mean it's it's such bullshit you it's know such like bullshit but it is like it was lively what keeps you alive is increasingly becoming I mean I suppose actually what keeps you alive has always been to do with social status status always I mean if you like people used to live in cities that had walls and if you did something wrong then you had to go outside the walls and <laughs> It weren't, didn't you? You were banished if you did something wrong. I read yeah. something about that this week. Something about um, it was the root of a word. I don't think it was banishment, but it was a word that was similar to that. And the root was a, basically the word was. I'm going to try and find this so I can give you the exact example. But the word came from the word for the city walls, and Ooh. it basically people could vote. It was like Big Brother. People could vote for <laughs> for for members of society that they wanted that they wanted gone and if you were voted for you had to go and live outside the walls for a certain amount of time where there was like no protection no like commerce nowhere to buy food nowhere to you know nowhere to kind of easily partake in all the things you need so you had more on your own you had to struggle oh my god yeah but this is different this is something to do with yeah again like being a symbol being a symbol of like like the symbol of your power or your interestingness I suppose is more important than your ability to feed yourself which is I mean that's insane Mm. 
but but you we you're, we have arrived at that like that mm. is now like very much a part of our reality and it's it actually terrifies me um and i have to say like taken together these two movies we were commenting how like misery and office space go, go so well together thematically for this discussion and i did not expect to feel the, the amount of anxiety I did watching Office Face again. Mm-hmm. Like, it really, it really provoked me. Like, I felt triggered, honestly. That's interesting. And I'm looking forward to talking about that one. Um, it's so interesting that you say that Freud, you know, the thing, because I've been thinking about that sort of symbolic sta- status, and then I've been thinking about the means of survival mm-hmm. as the only two options. And what you just said really reminded me of Zizek in The Pervert's Guide Cinema, where he's like, I want a third pill and I think you just provided a third pill which is sort of which is working as um this erotic experience where you have something to pursue um and yeah and something to something that moves you forward exactly and and actually keeps you alive on this third level this like totally other level this level that is um this kind of blissful or you know not blissful not sort of perfect but blissful in it like transcended transcendence yeah yeah like you're kind of like hovering above the drama like the pettiness of the way that we've been conditioned to think about work and I just think that that return to Freud that he really kind of always advised the people that he knew like you know his colleagues in his profession to follow your desire you know like the thing that turns you on like yeah. that you know and then you're going to end up doing good work like it and that he really isn't a model for doing that because he had you know he was on a career track of being a very uh, prominent neurologist um coming up with really exciting groundbreaking research in the field of uh the nervous system of eels oh. <laughs> um, <laughs> and you know like he he had it made you know like he was a doctor he was very he was middle class like he didn't have a need to like completely change t- change tack you know like he he just followed the data and he started thinking like what I'm seeing doesn't align with the strict scientific explanation that I've been given and something else needs to be discovered. And he just went his separate ways. And he, for a time, like he really was ostracized from mm-hmm. the medical community. He was seen as like a pariah, you know, and he took a lot of risks. Like people thought that he'd gone mad. Like this very socially conservative person talking about hypnosis and like, you know, seems and dreams. Like, I mean, it, sound, it must have sounded so, so bonkers at the time. Um, but the fact, the truth is like he, he, he felt very animated by that research and he, it moved him, like it advanced him intellectually it enriched him. And that's my advice for anyone, you know, struggling and where, wherever people feel like they are in spiritual or intellectual decay in the work they're doing, like it, I mean, it sounds so trite and cliche, but like. I just think if 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 you don't love it, you're only going to go so far. You have to love what you do. Mm. And the eros is so important, you know. Um, and yeah, I mean, actually, just 
as an addendum to your question about uh, a million, a million dollars, a million pounds, I would still continue working. Like I would, you know, like, but I would be so much more liberated, of course, in terms of what I did do, but I wouldn't want to just like be idle. I would still want to work because if not, like I I would feel very at sea, very lost. Mm. Yeah. 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 So would I definitely. Um, (laughs) Shall we start with Office Space? Yeah. I'm going to do a synopsis. Wait, are we starting with Office Space or Misery? (gasps) Misery. You're right. Shall we start with Misery? I'm going to do a synopsis. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Ready? Yeah. Okay. Tired of writing the series of romance novels that have made him famous, author Paul Sheldon retreats to a hotel in Colorado to complete a work of serious literature. Driving back to New York with the only copy of the finished manuscript, a blizzard sends his car off the road and renders him unconscious. He is found by a nurse, Annie Wilkes, who brings him to her remote home, puts his broken legs in splints and claims to be his number one fan. As Paul gets to know her, however, he finds that Annie is not quite the person she appears to be. Perfect. Yeah. So you read the book. I haven't read the book. I started the book. Yeah. I couldn't finish the book. Um, mm. I was very upset by the book. Mm. <laughs> um, mm. I think you, as you, as you know, and this is something we're going to talk about because it's kind of what this book's about. As you know, I'm very upset by addiction. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the book is much, much, much more about addiction. Oh. The film is because it's an sort of ad- as an additional um, kind of obstacle. He gets addicted to the painkillers that she gives him, and he has to, for his own survival, he has to come off these painkillers because oh. his, you know, because he has the same plan of of trying to save these yeah. painkillers so that he can use them to escape. And so he's, and it's just it's just horrible. Like he's like always crying in the book. I only got it was I only got about like a quarter of the way through but he's always crying he's like in so much pain and I just couldn't bear it it was so upsetting and I could I just couldn't I cried reading I had to put it down I'm gonna give it another try because I think it's like how you when sometimes I read the wikipedia of a horror movie so that I know what I'm gonna get so I think maybe I could read it on the second try because I know what I'm gonna get oh yeah but I've never been, I haven't been able to get through the book. It's too upsetting. But, you it's know, as you know, I find people. addiction in all its forms really, really difficult to deal with. So probably yeah. that's the reason. Oh, yeah. Like, I mean, any depiction of addiction is very painful. Like, it is a very painful topic. Yeah. Okay. That's interesting that there is that larger emphasis in the book. Um because I've not read the book, but I saw Misery, I saw the film as a kid and thought it was scary, but I didn't really get it. Like, for the most part, like, there was just, I guess, as a, as a kid, you, there's certain nuances that you're just not going to get. So I, ha- I rewatched it because it's, it's just been added to Netflix. And I was taken aback by what an incredible movie it is. So incredible. It's okay. so good. Everyone's so good in it. And apparently, what's her name? Um, Annie Wilkes? Bates. Oh Kathy Bates. Kathy Bates. Thank you. <laughs> apparently, Kathy Bates was just a theatre actress before this. Wow. Um, she hadn't been in films at all. So this was like her big her big break. This was and her big break. she's amazing in it. James Caan is amazing in it. I've got such a huge crush on James Caan. James Caan is Sonny in The Godfather, isn't he? Yeah. Same guy. 
I've yeah. always had a crush. I have, I do, and it doesn't matter to me. Like that's how I know it's love because it doesn't matter to me. Like Sunny in The Godfather to old James Khan in Misery. I love him so much. I have the hugest crush. I love him too. So and don't, and actually, this weekend I was reminded uh, teaching Dogville that he was also the father, Grace's father in Dogville. Yes, he is. Remember? And I have a crush on him, in, as, on him in that as well. I have loved him consistently <laughs> his whole life. He's amazing. Yeah. He yeah. Is amazing. <laughs> yeah. And what star power, like both of them, frankly, like they both command every, every uh, frame they're in. Yeah, and Lauren Bacall's in it. And Lauren Bacall. I yeah. mean, wow. It's, you always forget, but she's, yeah, everyone, it's just so good. Oh, yeah. And Lauren Bacall is in Dogville. <laughs> exactly. Ooh, this is getting weird. Oh, my God. Okay, this is getting spooky. <laughs> I just thought, like, because it was important to me like, to to maintain, when in my understanding of, like, how I think about livelihood and like the way people work and the parameters that people set for themselves and how they earn their living Mm -hmm. that I really appreciate horror films that can tell that story and that come up in the tropes of the horror genre, like utilize images to sometimes depict like, frankly, the terror of that. Like, I mean, when you really think about it, that like your, uh, probability of survival hinges upon money and earning a living and an Mm -hmm. income and you need that to access things to keep you alive I mean that is scary (laughs) it is isn't it I was I've been I've been struggling with that because I've been struggling that's exactly what I thought when I saw it this is so this is unreasonable this is unreasonable that we would ask people to like either sell their their time their hours which a lot of people you know, get paid by the hour, that's how they do it, or their skills or whatever, or, you know, what their output in order to stay alive. And then I thought maybe that's, is that ridiculous? Is that, is that really snowflakey? Is that, yeah. but I think maybe it wouldn't be so bad if, it wouldn't be so ridiculous if that's how everyone lived, but it's not how everyone lives. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly. the thing, that, that's the thing that stops it being ridiculous. When I, when I, when I, feel ashamed for complaining that's the thing that makes it different because he has to work to survive he has to work to survive but she doesn't exactly it's the inequality yeah of her abusing him like so he is trapped in this room she's obviously she presents herself as a super fan and she makes all these demands about him like bring, having to bring back a character that he killed off in his latest book And, you know, this idea that she feels so entitled, you know, to his labor and that, like, his very survival and physical well-being is contingent on her opinion on his work. I mean, it's her arbitrary opinion as a single Mm -hmm. fan and how she feels that that is, like, that overpowers his artistic prerogative you know and it just it's infuriating and like just the all the scenes of him just being cooped up like cloistered inside this house no one knows where he is he's being drugged he's you know uh provided the supplies to write but he's like on this 
a lot of pressure to have to write rewrite the book and like the misery you know yes the, the very apt word as <laughs> the title of the movie the misery to have to recreate something just to please this like snooty Karen mar- manager you know <laughs> Like this, like she's like the final level of Karen. Like she's, she's so annoying, and I don't know. It that, like that is so infuriating, and I feel like the 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 movie captured that state of work so well. Yeah, it definitely did. It's it's so interesting because I was thinking about um, creative work, and because we've definitely talked about creative work before, we've talked about it with Blow Up um, about kind of the anxiety around creative work and the sort of like need to conjure up uh, um, like externalized versions of that anxiety. And I think that their relationship, their sort of sadomasochistic codependent sort of strange relationship you know he like he needs to be nice to her to survive he needs to befriend her to survive he needs to please her and make this work for her he needs to like diminish himself actually this would pair so well with Dogville because it's about yeah. you know, people like like a single person whose resources is, are just like totally depleted by other people um but it it kind of made me think about um the way that creative work or art has been sort of like the corporatization of creative work and art you know when when I say the corporatization I mean taking art away from art for art's sake so if you went to art university in the 60s you know you'd learn painting you'd learn drawing you'd learn sculpture you know you would learn sort of like draftsmanship and design and things like that but you, you would you can learn a lot of art whereas now I think art universities are um that they just kind of funnel you into this industry and you have to be and your like your creativity has to be used by like by a brand or by you know you have to be a graphic designer or you you know if you can make fat films or fashion films or music videos or something to kind of serve the higher purpose but i wonder if that's something we might have done to ourselves mm-hmm. because the anxiety of producing art is too much and it wow. kind of takes that anxiety, it kind of takes that monster of true creativity and externalizes it as something we can hate. Oh my God. <laughs> this time watching Misery, I did wonder if this whole, you know, he has this whole terrible experience in between kind of crashing his car and then it finishes and then you just, it just kind of cuts to 18 months later and he's got this finished, you know, rewritten manuscript and everything. And is that just the kind of symbolic of this, of this like nightmare that he's had about what creating is? Wow, Sarah, I'm like I'm gobsmacked. <laughs> I really love that interpretation so much. So it's actually what you're saying is that depicting him inside this house, Annie's house, and being stuck, like actually being stuck, like strapped to a bed, tortured, physically abused, verbally berated. Mm -hmm. That could just be his own internal process of like the torture that he goes through within the creative process. And that it's a very, it's almost like a very insular experience. And it's, it's very isolating as a creative process as well. And so he's kind of like unreachable when he's in that zone. And Oh, wow. It's very violent. It's very violent. And I do think, yeah, she does seem, and I wonder if like all of neoliberalism in a way is kind of this monster that we've 
externalized what kind of kills your spirit or what like what attacks you internally which can feel like dying you know when people like have panic attacks as we've talked about before you know have panic attacks you know, I'm dying that kind of fear yeah. of, of dying and then there's and maybe that's kind of less manageable than actually someone's going to kill you so oh you know he kind of turns he sort of turns it into something a little bit more manageable and maybe that's kind of what we've all done a little bit we've made our pain kind of more manageable by I don't know giving someone else this giving all of these corporations this kind of power over us externalizing we, the torture of living yeah because if we weren't we're not worrying about like and we're all worrying about how to stay alive worrying about climate yeah. change we're worrying about um inequality uh, a pandemic all that kind of thing but if we weren't worrying about that what would we have to if we were all on this kind of equal footing what would we have to worry about instead and that's really that's really frightening I just love that so much because you're right like the the creative process is so complex and there is a terrorizing element to it Mm. that maybe we haven't always been conditioned or like I suppose maybe like supported in confronting so and it can be so much more convenient just to kind of like disavow that process the trade-off is that you can just work at your bullshit job and not have to worry about being creative. Like that's no longer your responsibility. You've kind of like absolved yourself of that. Mm. But the trade-off is that you're, you're living a banal life where there are other tortures like externalized in your environment, but at least you don't like you're numb, you're numb and you don't get to feel it on the, on the internal, but at the same time, you're not really creating anything. You're just like going through the motions. Oh my God, Sarah! Like I'm really struggling to add anything more. Oh no! (laughs) You resolved it. Like it's perfect. (laughs) But but it's true because this the movie opens with Lauren Bacall, like she makes the demands on him. You know, like she's the 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 kind of polite uh, fronting face of Annie Wilkes. You know, the glamour. You know. That's true. That's the uh, that's like actually a whole other interpretation is that Lauren McCall determines to not allow him to take away her bread and butter of the misery franchise. You know, Veers is like you know crashes his car off the road and then kidnaps him and makes him burn the manuscript and write another misery book. And he can't accept that it's her, so he just oh so God. he turns her into Annie Wilkes. <laughs> in his mind yeah yeah you know the the kind of high gloss and sophistication just like fall away and it's this creature who is made out to be like unattractive and like just weird and eccentric and like um yeah like really dreadful person Mm. um but yeah like I just think that it's it's such a great movie for references about what we do to ourselves when we're working like you know, and especially when it comes to solitary work, because for people who are just used to working in groups or in office spaces, as we will be touching on in the second film, it's not the same dynamic as when you're commissioned to do something. Like you and I understand that because we do that type of work all the time. Like we get, um, you know, we, we get to do creative work um, and sometimes 
completely on our own. So we know the dynamics of that. And I do feel like it is a good representation of psychologically, like what that looks like. There's a topography of a person in their room working. Mm -hmm. And I just love also the Hitchcockian element of danger and like him setting little tasks for himself to like escape his situation and the possibility that he'll be caught. And oh my God, it's it's kind of like unbearable. It's so unbearable. It's the most amazing film. I love it so much. But I actually, I just remembered a quote that I read from Stephen from Stephen King, which kind of fits in with, I think, the whole theme of the episode, which is, you can get busy living or you can get busy dying. Ooh. Which I think he says in On Writing, which is a book that he's written about the process of writing. Oh, wow. Yeah, so it really kind of, like, it really sort of fits <laughs> in with that, like, Eros choice versus the, like, working to live choice exactly Mm -hmm. which is actually the working to live is kind of more the death drive you know Mm -hmm. the repetition like the repetition compulsion of just doing these banal tasks every day because you have to do them you you know it's the tps reports or whatever (laughs) did you read that he said that annie was cocaine no he said that that's like that's what she because people thought that it was about his fans but he said that it was about cocaine, that Annie was cocaine. He said, Annie was cocaine. Um, she's my number one fan. Which is so... and Because he was addict, terribly addicted to cocaine, to alcohol oh and cocaine. Do you, do you have any intel on like what Stephen King thought of the movie? He likes okay. Stand By Me best. But he likes Stand By Me, Misery and Cujo. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. When she shoots the police officer, like that is always such a great cinematic uh, symbol of the psychotic state because, like, it's this, it's it's a literal disavowal of the law. Yeah. Where you just reject, you know, the the thing that binds the symbolic order together. In which case, like, you're represented by law enforcement, and how, like, this Annie character. I mean, she has really lost the plot. Like, she is a psychotic. You know, she's completely delusional. And how, in a way. Like the creative process, it's it's a risky business, but you kind of almost have to like negotiate the psychotic state. Really fully embody the world that you're conjuring up through your work. I, I suppose it's like a suspension of disbelief. I, I always mm-hmm. like I always like to compare like being fully in, immersed in a in a project. Like what for example, like when I write my lectures. It's it's a similar pro- process for me as when I enter the cinematic space. I have to like really suspend disbelief and like almost surrender to what I'm doing and like occupy that world and inhabit it as long as I need to. Yeah. Um, And in a way that is a little bit of like an altered state of consciousness, you know? Yeah. And it's so hard to get to that state. Yeah. You have to get past a really like difficult, unpleasant bit before you can get to that, into that zone. Um. (laughs) I've I find I mean I know that it's it's everyone you know everyone talks about this and it's like notoriously horrible but the scene where she breaks his legs oh god um it's I think it's so horrible because it doesn't have horror music it has like tragedy music it's not actually presented as ho- as horror it's presented as this terribly terribly sad step backwards when you learn that it's about cocaine, I suppose it's kind of like a relapse scene or something like all of this hard work, all of this 
oh effort is suddenly it's gonna you're gonna have to take another nine months to heal or however you know however long you're gonna have to kick this again and oh it's the hopelessness God. of that it's so it's so upsetting um it's so unbearable it's so and that's why so I think sad. that's why it's unbearable it's not that it's scary at all no it's, it's this terrible terrible moment of setback oh my god like falling off the wagon and that yeah. being like that incapacitates you your plan to escape the situation has been delayed like indefinitely like you're yeah. now back where you started and you can't move yeah. oh my god that is unbearable it's so sad it's so sad I mean the book is even sad I just Anyone that's managed to get through it and they feel like it's worth it at the end, please tell me because, yeah, I couldn't. It was just too sad. What a film. I know. Yeah. <laughs> um, Shall we move on to Office Space? Yeah, I'm glad we, we started with that and we're moving on to the comedy genre, just yeah. the neutral line. Like, yeah, I actually feel quite wiped out just for the, from the discussion of that. But, like, wow. reliving that kind of trauma. Yeah. Um, which I suppose is what you're kind of asking a creative to do to a certain extent. Um, Absolutely. And it's a credit to all the people involved in making that movie that it is so effective and it is so heart and gut wrenching. Um, it's, they did an amazing job. Um, so office space. Okay. Shall I synopsize? Yes, please. Okay. Um, Peter is a frustrated and unmotivated programmer who works at a company called Initech, along with co-workers Samir, Michael and Milton, as well as smarmy boss Bill Lundberg. Attending a hypnotherapy session at his cheating girlfriend's insistence, Peter becomes trapped in a deeply relaxed state when the therapist suffers a heart attack. Over the next few days, Peter's new personality sees him skip work and ask out Joanna, a waitress he has a crush on, all with positive consequences. His reckless behaviour goes too far, however, when he, Samir and Michael enact a plan to steal small amounts of money from Inatech. I love this film. Me Everyone too. Loves this film. So, okay, where shall we start? I love, you know, it's like this very cathartic film. It totally is. And I love this. I love the gangster rap. Like, I love all the, the soundtrack is so funny and good. And at first, like, he's almost like Michael Douglas in Falling Down, like fed up frustrated office guy you know everything takes him off in his workplace and rightly so it is a very annoying place to work yeah it's kind of it's like a hellscape like a, a boring hellscape oh. where he just is subjected to kind of just the repetition of meaninglessness all the time he says every day is the worst day of his life <laughs> in that therapy session and he's just so miserable and he's like, can you make me forget that I was at work? Like, is what he asks. The million dollar question is something that he asks people to, and he, he you know, feels that there's some kind of meaning in this question because it reveals what people really want to do. But his answer is that he would want to do nothing. Yeah. That's his luxury. Yeah, to do nothing. Because in that regard, I find that he's a very, like, modern day Sisyphus. Like... The torture of having to constantly push the boulder up the hill and then every single day it rolls down and crushes you and you have to repeat the next day. Totally meaningless task. And Albert Camus' solution to the problem of Sisyphus is you cease to care about the importance of the, banal the banality of your everyday life. Mm. And you just see the funny side 
and you kind of replace the anxiety and frustration with laughter. Like he says, you we, we have to imagine Sisyphus happy, which is, I think, like, in a way, like what his transformation to me is almost something very similar to what happens to Arthur Fleck and Joker. Like mm. things things become funny, you know, and he, there's almost like an, you know, he's able to like access his aggressive impulses as well and say what he really thinks, which can become a very violent act in a banal landscape like that, where you're just expected to conform. When I watched Office Space this time around to prepare for this episode, I was full of anxiety. Like I was, I, I, that took me by surprise. I was so, it like I had to actually take a beta blocker <laughs> to like yeah. calm myself because I was like oh my god I don't want to see someone like in a cubicle and being like berated about TPS reports and like that horrible manager and management speaks mm-hmm. Man- to me like management speak is like evil like I'm not I, I I'm not exaggerating with the use of that word oh no I I totally agree I have a list of words I have a list of words and phrases I like and a list of words and phrases I dislike and on my dislike are um workflow and um going forward and next to going forward I've written fuck off because (laughs) that's what that's the words that spring out of my mouth when someone says going forward because it's a threat it's like threatening it's a threatening word um sort of tied up in a bow of usefulness and put you know constructive criticism um it's it's horrible it's horrible yeah Yeah, it is so it's management speak is so fucking passive aggressive the pure like banality of evil that hannah aran talks about like it's for it's like evil for gutless people Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know like I cannot bear it and it just reminded me that I've not fully recovered from my trauma of like working in those banal spaces yeah and that it really is it takes a toll on your soul like it really does yeah I am I spent um two weeks in a Victoria's Secret training program too because I was unemployed and I needed to get a job and I had a friend an old agent provocateur friend who was working there and she got me a job there and I um I came I cried every night Mm. um because yeah it was full of like strange management speak and it was very kind of I I will one day write a short film about it it was the most surreal experience of my surreal like crazy things happened and not just with the people delivering the training but with my like my colleagues were also exhibiting totally bizarre behavior it was the most it was the most surreal experience of my life um and it It does bad things to people it does very bad things to people and it makes and it just produces this kind of anxiety and fear um that makes people do very very strange things it's very bad for you and what's so interesting in this because the film kind of pulls the rug out from under you a little bit because for a while you're kind of going along with this new Peter, this new relaxed Peter who is so, um, it's really hard for me to say Peter because of um, Don't Trust the Bitch in Apartment 23 and the <laughs> gut June in it calls penises Peters and um, now it's really hard for me to concentrate. <laughs> I'm like this new relaxed Peter. <laughs> <laughs> This new flaccid Peter. 
grow up. Um, <laughs> um, but for a while, you think that this is all going, this is all going well, and this is. But then what happens is he gets he he goes to this meeting, this consultation, because there are these consultants whose job it is to get rid of unproductive people and replace them with um with newer, inexperienced, cheaper people, which is actually like a really evil corporate um like tech strategy for saving money it's done all over the world in all sorts of companies you get rid of people that are that you don't see as valuable but have seniority and get and replace them with people that are like green and hungry and eager to to prove themselves and will work for much less money um anyway and he you know he, he goes into this meeting with them and he expresses you know, expresses the meaninglessness of his work and his the the his unmo his lack of motivation. And their solution is to promote him to a management class, um, which really says something about the kind of because we've we had that in the eighties, yeah. we had that done on this mass scale of. Um, upward mobility it was called this idea people that people lived in council houses could buy their council houses and that we would we were all expected to to move up a class and when you really think about that that's crazy because what you're saying is that it's it's intolerable to exist in certain rungs of society but your solution is that everything moves upper rung it doesn't make any sense no or or like special or just special people move up a rung and then the people that are left with this intolerable situation does like deserve it or uh, what it's crazy so it, it was crazy kind of but it's also it kind of gives you a clue as to why it doesn't work out for him because instead of really achieving freedom he's kind of assimilated or he's he's sort of assimilated into the management class instead of and it kind of reveals something about the attitude of the management class that the less you care the more um and it it made me think so about like about pay grades and how much money you make and how above a certain pay grade it's totally symbolic you're not being paid for anything you do you're just being paid because you're special yeah it's completely arbitrary. Like there is no, there's no like demonstrable, like evidence-based reason why you get that salary. You're, yeah. you, it's just been arbitrarily like decided and you've been anointed as the chosen one and that's it. I mean, it's ridiculous. And you're right. Like this idea that we should all aspire to be the one to climb up that rung it's almost like intermittent reinforcement. Like when you go to Vegas and you play the slot machines and like you may play for like, like let's say four hours and like for the totality of your four hours, you'll, 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 you'll be winning for about 15 minutes in that chunk of time. But it makes you keep playing because you're like, well, I'm bound to win again. Mm. Like the idea is that makes, you know, intermittent reinforcement is like baked into the business model of casinos. Because if you never win, you're not going to be motivated to continue playing. Of course, the house always wins. But that's also the propaganda of neoliberalism. Like, you know, you too could move up the ladder. You too can be a manager. Like, it's such bullshit. Like, 
it means nothing. Mm-hmm. Absolutely nothing. Like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of infuriating. That's why they when they take their aggression out on like the office appliances, like it just feels so good. Yeah, it's wonderful. It's one of the greatest scenes in cinema. I'm I'm astonished. I mean, I'm astonished that this didn't make more money at the box office. I, know. I can understand. I mean, I can sort of understand it because it's quite boring aesthetically, and maybe people, it you know, they just couldn't get people to come and see it. But I would pay to see that printer smashing on a big screen. <laughs> Hell yeah. Definitely. On a loop, like just on a loop. Keep it going. Yeah, I don't even need to watch the rest of the film. I just want to watch that scene. It's beautiful. It is so cinematic. It's incredible. Oh um, yeah. So yeah, it does kind of pull the rug out from because you you feel that he's. But I suppose the reason that it pulls the rug out from under you is because it doesn't help anything if one person makes their way up. I suppose mm. is what it's trying to say. It doesn't solve the problem. It doesn't solve the problem for no. him. It doesn't solve the problem for anyone else. So, like, upward mobility is stupid. You should just make it more comfortable at the bottom. Exactly. Like, it should just be, like, a collectivized, um, shared ownership of the yeah. means of production. Like, you know, um, where everyone has a stake in the work that they're doing. It's not just, like, one person uh hitting the jackpot and then everyone else lives in the hope that maybe if they work hard enough they too can bullshit you know it's because that's just you're gambling your life away waiting for that you may as well just like yeah like come up with a better solution with your colleagues on how you know how you can best um feel like you have a stake in the work that you do you know mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you're right. Like that, that lesson is absolutely in the film. Um, yeah. And I also wondered, like, I was curious about the kind of subplot of his girlfriend cheating. Yes. Like the cheating, like the disloyalty element and what, how can we connect that with his quandary about his work? Like, because I felt like maybe that was just another manifestation of how he was being cheated at work, you know, like where the thing that he signed up for, like this professional contract of like showing up, doing the work, etc., that there is like a there's a type of betrayal uh, that takes place for him, like existentially, because he's really good at portraying that, like that actor, like you really feel his despair. <laughs> That's so interesting because that it kind of explains why he gets so upset when he thinks that Jennifer Aniston, who's his new girlfriend, has slept with his boss. Right, you see? It's the same, It's yeah, it kind of all ties in. Because I was sort of wondering about that subplot. I was just like, is it just there because there needs to be some kind of like love story? I mean, obviously, she kind of delivers the alter, the, the big line, isn't it? It's just everyone hates their job. You just you just find something that you love. Um, and I guess that's kind of what Freud's saying to a certain yeah. extent. We know what's so interesting, though, is that their their job is to write code for in preparation for the year 2000, um, which sounds like a really banal job. But I've like, list, like listened to a few podcasts on that and read a few articles on that. And that apparently was actually a very important job. Our grasp on that story was that there was like a panic about the millennium bog and that it all came to nothing. But I think in actual fact, there were a lot of people working behind the scenes for a couple of years 
to make it okay. And the reason that nothing happened is because there were a lot of computer tech, computer people, <laughs> computer men, <laughs> computer men and women, um, working on on that project. Oh my god! Yeah, so that really it was a thing. Was, yeah, and it wasn't like a huge project or anything, but a lot of people, you know, a lot of people came in and did rewrite some code and did because people kept an eye on the situation that was why nothing bad happened wow yeah so they softened they softened the landing yeah and the few small things bad things did happen I think like people were given like negative like positive test results for terrible diseases and things like that because of a glitch in the system a few like lots of small things happened okay but I think that it was actually due to lots of people working on it that bigger things didn't happen wow so yeah it's just that's just kind of that's like it's so interesting because but right now we've got this pandemic that's being handled really badly and it's making news because it's being handled really badly but if it was handled really well then maybe no one would notice and everyone would would just remember this as a scare oh wow Yeah, yeah that's that's the best that we could hope for is that like tragedy is averted by no one really noticing that someone something is wrong and those are all the unsung heroes behind the scene who've like worked tirelessly to prevent catastrophe and that's why it's like it's Peter's definitely not Peter's ideal job because he doesn't see any meaning in it but you get the impression that um, Samir and Michael do quite like that job and do see meaning in it because at the end they're still doing that same job still doing it yeah whereas he's become uh, a construction worker which was on the list of happiest jobs 10 happiest ah, jobs right yeah oh, that's so I looked right. up I looked up the happiest jobs to see what they said I'm going to read them to you okay yeah so this was two, from 2015 right um engineer number one. Oh, okay teacher number two I bet that's not the case anymore no uh, nurse number three again I bet not oh. not happiest job anymore mm-hmm. uh, medical practitioner number four I guess that's just doctors and anyone who works in a hospital mm-hmm. gardener ah yes yeah um construction worker um, and personal assistant no really? way no like, way who who did they interview in this? Because <laughs> as you suggested earlier, hairdresser should have been in here and it's not. So I think me. this is this is the happiest middle class jobs in the world because this isn't right. I would have expected like aestheticians, uh, hairdressers, nail technicians to be to be there, like because it is you, it's fun. You get to be creative and you get like happy customers. You said that during the pandemic you wanted to do to do a training to learn nail, nail tech. That's cool. Yeah, that's I think so cool. it could be really cool. I'm not. I I think first I have to learn to drive. I think that's what my like that's what my next grand is being spent on. But yeah. afterwards, I'm seriously considering retraining as a nail technician because I just want a skill. Yeah, I think it would be really nice. You know what, Sarah? I recently purchased um, a little LED light thing for like drying your nails. Oh, does it work? Yeah, it's amazing. And it gives like the effect of like gel nails. Yeah. Oh, amazing. That's, 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 I'm going to try that. I want, I'm going to get one. Oh, it's so nice. Yeah, it's like just a small one that you can just like, it's like a USB recharger one. Like it's so nice. It would probably also be really funny to watch Office Space in a double bill with horrible bosses. Yes. Oh, yeah. Amazing. Right? Because, because that's Jennifer Aniston, like, she's the evil yeah. boss. And that's, like, 
the tra trajectory that a woman like her has that the, you know so she's the girlfriend in 1999 and then she's the, like the sort of cougar boss <laughs> and when she gets older that's so true yeah oh what did you think of um the magazine salesman Oh, uh, I thought that was a really interesting thing. character. At first, I was like, "This is racist because it's the only yeah. black guy in the film, and he's like going door to door and being like, you know, I'm I used to be on crack and selling these magazines." But then they get him in the house, and he's like, "Listen, I'm a software engineer. I'm just say this story about being on crack to sell magazines because I make more money selling magazines than I ever did being a programmer, software oh, a computer sorry, programmer." Yeah. yeah. Okay. And he says, "I, you know, I'm a computer programmer." I'm an out-of-work computer programmer and I make more money doing this. And I think it kind of reminded me of when we did I, Daniel Blake all that time ago. And you had that character that was selling trainers. That's right. Uh, and it's sort of interesting because he's kind of found this middle ground between this, like, he's sort of relinquished the symbolic because yeah. he's doing this thing that is, he's saying this thing or he's presenting himself as this thing that is marginalised. Mm -hmm. But in relinquishing the symbolic, he's thriving and more than accessing the means of survival he's making more money than they do Aww. and so I thought it's a nice little nice little moment in there of someone yeah. kind of cracked it who's figured it out I like that yeah <laughs> yeah that's so true I wonder if one day they'll consider like kind of making office space too and like the you know in the, I mean, it would just be a totally different thing. Like all of the offices would have like bean bags and like <laughs> and like free coffee and beer, and it would have to be in a WeWork. Oh yeah, yeah you'd have to do it in a WeWork, and it would that be with true. like people incessantly playing table tennis, because oh, WeWork's just as surreal and weird as that office. It's just in a totally different way. Yeah, it's the, the complete exactly. opposite because it's it's if anything worse like spiritual conditions but more stuff and more like yeah like more stuff but also more liminal like yeah. this weird space that you don't really feel grounded in and like I was thinking also like just if if, if office space were remade today in 2020 like there would be like hot desking politics like you wouldn't have your own little cubicle you, yeah. you wouldn't have your personal objects you know attached that, to your space that would like delineate your identity you just constantly be this like office nomad you know yeah. <laughs> which is even more liminal like these spaces are already so spiritually defective and I feel like we've just plumbed the depths of like more spiritual like deficit in like office spaces <laughs> yeah oh my gosh <laughs> it's funny do you have anything more to say on office space or livelihood or have we no, said it all I'm, I am literally so happy that I got to like talk through my anxiety in this episode like I feel so unburdened at this moment like I felt like almost like traumatized by like the office space scene. So I'm just so happy to like talk it through and like also have a few laughs. I just I feel like really light afterwards. Well, I mean, it's an interesting time to look at that film because we may be looking at the death of the office right now yeah. because everyone's experienced, well, like, not everyone, but a lot of people who are not uh, all of those things in that list yeah. are able to work from home. And it might it might not only change the space, but change the jobs. 
as well. Yeah, that is true. So actually that rebooted office space might just be like found footage of Zoom meetings. Mm. (laughs) In which case it's a horror film for sure. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) Definitely. That sounds amazing. Oh my gosh, that was a fun episode to record. Yeah, it was really fun. Oh, let's remember all our things. Follow us on Twitter, Projections Pod. Instagram Projections Podcast and then just kind of pass it along tell anyone who you think might be interested to listen Um, and if you really really want to you can donate Uh, we have a donate button on our website projectionspodcast.com our next episode episode five looking at austerity so we're looking at the films compliance and under the skin I'm excited I'm excited yeah get watching um okay (laughs) see you next week Bye. Bye. Take this job and shove it. I ain't working here no more.